Amen. Everybody standing, please. And uh, today's Veterans Day. Uh, and for all the veterans, if you've served in the military in any capacity, would you just lift your hand so that we can honor you? Come on, church. Look at, let's bless them. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for your service. And we, do, we do appreciate you. We honor you. Thank, thank God for you today that you, you serve to keep this nation free where we can do what we're doing this morning. Gather in his name. Amen. And uh, we're glad to see you this morning. Turn around and smile at somebody. Tell them they're looking, looking dapper. They're looking dapper this morning. That's an English term. It means looking good. Looking good. Amen. How many would rather be here than any ICU unit that you know of? Amen. <laughs> That's the way the old preachers used to do it. Amen. <laughs> we should say that, right? Today's been on my heart to just talk to you about what really happened at the cross. I do feel like that a lot of the church really do not know what happened at the cross, what really happened at the cross when Jesus came and died for us. Why did Jesus come and die? Why did God do it that way? Why did he uh, choose to do it that way? Why did he have to do it that way? Uh, since the fall of man, uh, of Adam and Eve in the garden, we, we talk about this a lot, in, whether we say it in this fashion or not, but mankind, uh, we have viewed God through uh, a cracked lens, through a shattered lens. And what happens is we have a distorted view of who God really is. That's what we talked about even a few Sundays ago of tearing down every high thing, every imagination of the heart, everything that tries to keep us from knowing who God really is and not who religion has projected him to be. And so what happens, because we see God through this shattered lens, we project our brokenness uh, onto a God that we do not know. And we tend to be like a lot of people. Most people, do you realize in this country, most people think that God represents the law, uh, that he records our sins one by one. And uh, some of you, I remember I grew up in church hearing that if you didn't get it all straightened out on this side, when you stood before God, there'd be a big video screen and it would play your sins in front of the whole world to see. Anybody ever heard that lie besides me? Man, that used to terrify me, you know. I mean, uh, it's, just, it's just so ridiculous, the things that, that we've heard. But that God, uh, with every sin we commit, he gets angrier and angrier at us and he is a judge to be feared rather than a father to be loved. Um, you know, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the New Testament teaches. And so I want to look at that today. And I just want us to pray together, and then I'm going to allow you to be seated. Father, we, we thank you that, first of all, that you came to die on the cross for us. We thank you for redeeming us, for delivering us, for rescuing us, for setting us free. We give you praise and I pray that that revelation of what you've done, what you accomplished when you uttered those words, those last words from the cross, it is finished, that we would know that it truly is finished, that you finished what you came to do. You are the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. Let us know that. Let us get that revelation today. And Father, we thank you for your grace that is so abundant to all that will receive it. I pray that Jesus Christ would be glorified uh, 
And I pray this church and those that hear this message will be edified, built up, strengthened, comforted, encouraged by what they hear today, the truth that sets men free. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said amen. Amen. Smile one more time, shake somebody's hand, tell them welcome to Grace Point before they sit down. Amen. So why did Jesus die on the cross? That seems like, you know, an Easter message, I guess. It's it's an everyday message. But why did Jesus die on the cross? And this is what religion says. Religion uh, answers that question by saying we were born criminals. That uh, we entered this world, and the moment that you took your first breath, you were offensive to God, you were condemned to die. And uh, this is the lie of religion. This is how it portrays why Jesus came on the cross. I've mentioned this to you before. We, I, I think I even put it in my book. Um, but if you don't do it while I'm preaching, but if you was to Google this, and I did it this morning, just to, I, everything I ever tell you, I want it to be 100% the truth. So even this morning, I Googled, what is the greatest sermon ever preached in America? And what the majority of those that search will do will pop up a sermon by a great preacher uh, named Jonathan Edwards. And on July the 8th of 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached what most people, even Google says, is the most famous sermon ever delivered in the history of America. And you know what the title of that sermon was? (laughs) That's right. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. You know why that sermon is uh, the most famous? Because it scared the hell out of people. Fear is the greatest motivator as far as the secular world goes. God doesn't use it. God has never used fear to try to motivate people to love him, surrender their life to him. God's never used hell, dangled people over hell. God, God never has done any of those things. Uh, hell is not God's incentive program to get you to choose the proper place. Uh, God, there is never a verse that said God created hell. Uh, that's another sermon I've talked about. That, that uh, most of the time, when you see the word hell in your English Bible, the word that they're translating that from is Sheol, which means the grave. It don't mean fire and brimstone and pitchforks and the pointed tail devil. Hell is not Satan's headquarters. He doesn't live there. He's never been there. I better get back to this sermon. But Jonathan Edwards preached sins in the hands of an angry God. And what this sermon did is it portrayed God full of anger, vengeful towards sinners. And uh, I'm going to read an uh, excerpt from this uh, sermon. Listen, Listen to what Jonathan Edwards preached, what he said. He said, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you, abhors you, that means hates you, and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful 
venomous serpent is in ours. How'd you like to be sitting here and that preach to you this morning? They're telling you that you're so loathsome that God hates the sight of you. He can't even bear to look at you. He dangles you over a fire like a spider. <laughs> Yay, God. Now, how many would like to serve that God? How many wants to surrender? I mean, that's ridiculous. That is the lie of religion. And you can scare people, but you can't scare people into heaven. You can't scare people. You can't scare uh, guys. You can't scare a girl to make, you, make her love you. You can't do it. You can make her serve you, but you can't make her love you. Is this view of God accurate? Most of the sermons that, that preach this is how they even today portrays God. But is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what the New Testament Bible teaches? No. This is, this is what the Bible says about your sins. In Hebrews chapter 8 and 12, and I could have picked so many. And I know you've heard, some of you have heard this. Some of this is new to you. Hebrews 8 and 12 says, For I will, this is God talking, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. He's talking about this new covenant. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. What did God say he would do about your sins? Does he remember them or not? So let me ask you another question. Is the Holy Spirit God? Or is he a dove? Is he a bird? Is the Holy Spirit God? You act like you don't know. Is the Holy Spirit God? Is there one God? Is is he manifested in three personalities? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, when the Ananias and Sapphira lied, uh, the apostles did not, they said you lied to to the Holy Spirit, and then they said you lied to God. The Holy Spirit is God. He is the Spirit of God. All right? So if God remembers your sins no more, then stop saying the Holy Spirit's convicting you of your sin. Because how can he convict you of what he don't remember? The Holy Spirit, the Bible says in the New Testament, convicts or convinces, same word, same Greek word, he convinces the world of their unrighteousness, of their sin, because they have not known God. But once you know God, God will not talk to you about your sin. He will talk to you about his righteousness. You would think by now we would have that down. (laughs) Isaiah prophesied about this glorious new covenant that God would bring to pass when Jesus came. And he he talked about how it would bring an end to God's anger. Isaiah 54, verse 8, 9, and 10. God says, with a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment. During that time that the law was there. And they were given the law and they said they would keep the law. That is the only time you see God's wrath and anger being poured out upon sin. But with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. He says, this is such a big deal. He says, for this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. There it is in your Bible. God says when this new covenant comes, don't ever believe any preacher or anybody that ever portrays me as being angry towards you. God's not angry towards the saints. God's not angry towards the sinners. God's not angry towards anybody on this planet. 
Thank you for that thunderous amen. God says, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from you. Nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. God said, I'll give you a bona fide. <laughs> Y'all know what that means. You ain't from the country. God said, I'll give you a bona fide promise. He said, the mountains will depart for this here won't be true. 2 Corinthians, New Testament, chapter 5, verse 19. He says that God was in Christ. What was he doing? Reconciling the world to who? To himself. God said, I'll do this. You can't do anything about it. You can't cry enough, confess enough, repent enough to make things to be right between me and you, so I'm going to make them right. Reconcile means to bring peace or harmony. When you reconcile your checkbook, you bring it into harmony, and you bring your checkbook into agreement with what the bank says you got or don't have. That's why you reconcile it. So you're reconciling your bank ledger to agree with the banks because we pretty much know theirs is the right one, right? And you know how you do uh, when you balance your checkbook and you think you're $1,000 short and the bank messed up, you're quick to call them. But if you check that ledger and it looks like you got 1000 extra, you don't call them. You hope that they made a mistake in your favor and you're just going to be quiet about it. But God says that I was reconciling the world to myself. And how did he do that? Not imputing, not counting, not recording, not keeping a record of their trespasses, their sins. And has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The, the lie from the world, religious world, is that we were all born criminals. But that's not what the New Testament teaches. Paul said we were born slaves to sin. We were born, listen, in prison. Now a lot of people think that even though they don't have Jesus and they haven't been set free by Christ, they think they're free. Yeah, you're free to walk from your prison cell out to the you know, courtyard or the exercise yard and you're free to walk to the cafeteria to eat a meal and then you're free to go back to your cell. But you're not free. So don't kid yourself. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. But all you can be a good prisoner or a bad prisoner, but you're still a prisoner. And what religion says to you is to do good, to be good, and avoid bad. But it doesn't, it's, 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 it's immaterial. It, it, it doesn't matter. It's, ir it's irrelevant because you're still a prisoner at the end of the day. Why were you a prisoner? Because you were born a prisoner. You're still a slave to sin and you don't have any choice now because you are a prisoner. You are a slave to sin. And, and so you can be a good prisoner or a bad behaving prisoner, but your behavior is not what makes you not a prisoner. It's being set free. And Jesus came, the New Testament says it like this. Jesus said, I've come to set the prisoner and the captive free. Man, y'all should be happier about that right there. Jesus said, I've come to set, not, he didn't say I've come to set the criminals free. 
But I come to set the prisoners free. I come to set those that's been taken captive by the enemy free. So what is, what is our greatest need? What is, what, you know, what is the greatest need that we have as mankind? Now, religion will answer that question for you. All these questions, religion will answer it for you. Religion says man's greatest need is to be forgiven of their sin. They major on that, man. That's, they miss the whole thing that I just read. That's verse after verse after verse in the New Testament says that God don't remember your sins. That's why in the New Testament Bible, when people are, we, are, we observe people getting saved, rescued, sin's not mentioned. When the Philippian jailer asked the great apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't say, bow your eyes, confess your sins, repeat after me. Y'all need to bring me a chair up here, then I reckon it's going to be one of them Sundays. No, he didn't. He didn't mention sin. I guess Paul didn't know what he was doing. I'm so glad that we know what we're doing, and Paul didn't. We know how to get people saved. First thing we talk to him about is sin that God don't even remember. Romans chapter 10, great famous chapter. I mention it often. That tells people how to be saved. It says, if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. It uses the word confess, but the the whole chapter of Romans 10 never mentions the word sin, not one time. But it says that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will confess that with your mouth unto righteousness, you're saved. And sin's never mentioned. Why is sin so glaringly absent while people are getting saved in the New Testament? Because it has nothing to do with them getting saved. Well, why don't they have to ask for forgiveness? Uh, no. They're already forgiven. Do you know that is such a shock to most Christians? They're already forgiven? Yes. Why? Because God forgave them. God reconciled. Jesus didn't lie. Neither did John the Baptist. When he pointed at Jesus, said, that's the Lamb of God that takes away the what? The sin of those who confess their sins? No. He said the sin of the church? No. He said the sin of the world. Did he do it or not? When Jesus said it is finished, did he lie or is it, is it finished or is it not finished? If it's finished then, he finished what he came to do and he came to take away the sin of the world. So either he finished it or he didn't finish it. And if he didn't finish it, he's got to come back and finish it. And if he didn't finish it, he's a liar because he said it is finished. Now you got to decide what religious cookie you're going to eat. Are you going to believe the Bible? Are you going to believe what some preacher says that don't know the Bible? The Bible said that he's the Lamb of God and he would take away, obliterate, itemize, remove the sin of the whole world. That's why God's not angry. Because he's got nothing to be angry about. Well, people are still sinning like crazy, but God's already forgiven them. It doesn't mean that God doesn't, that wants people to sin. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. I'm not saying go out, don't worry about it, sin willy-nilly. Why would you want to sin? Why do you want to eat out of a dumpster 
when you got a banquet table now? Why do you want to go back to your old life when you've been delivered from your old life? If you used to eat out of the dumpster, now you've got a debit card and just, you eat anywhere you want to, anytime you want to. Why go back and eat out of the dumpster? That's the spirit of stupid. Why would you want to do that? You're free to eat out of the dumpster. Jesus set you free. But you're not a robot. you got choice. The prison gates have been blown off the hinges. There are no more locks in the prison. Now you can stay in there and live in there if you want to, but you're free to walk outside of that and be free in Jesus Christ. You don't have to live. You're not a prisoner anymore. And there's no wardens and there's no prison guards that are holding you captive. It's only in your brain that you think you're captive. You're not captive. You have been delivered from the power of sin. That's what Jesus did. That's what really happened at the cross. So what's man's greatest need if it's not to be forgiven? Man's greatest need is for life. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden... Their greatest need was not forgiveness. It doesn't even mention it. doesn't talk about it. Their greatest need was that they died that day. And they needed life. The New Testament Bible teaches that Jesus said, I uh, am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full measure. The greatest verse that we many consider in the New Testament, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe upon him should not, what, perish, but what, have, what kind of life? Everlasting life. Eternal, what, life. Because that's our greatest need. Because the Bible in the New Testament, Paul taught us that we were born dead. We were born dead. We were born dead in trespasses and sin. Right? Uh, God didn't place you there. Adam placed us there. Tell him thank you when you get to heaven and you, you'll get to see. I think he's going to have to have his own security team, you know, for, for a few days. You know, I don't know. I remember one time years ago when my kids were all still small and uh Jill's parents, my wife's parents, had moved to Denver, Colorado. It was about this time of the year, and we were making our first uh, trip out there to spend Thanksgiving with them. Um, and we had uh, driven, and we were had spent the night on the Kansas side of the Kansas-Colorado state line. And... Um, I had spent the night, the previous night, driving in St. Louis. Money was extremely, extremely tight. It was taking everything we had to just get out there. We had a little minivan in those days when they were popular, so all three of the kids could roam around and, you know, and uh, had a little bed back there for them. And uh, so I was so give out when we got to St. Louis that I stayed at a motel that we really couldn't afford. But I was so tired, I just you know, paid, paid it and stayed there. So the next night we were having to make up and we had to stay at a cheaper motel because we spent at a nice one. So uh, I stayed at a, a hotel on that Kansas border. Uh, 
and uh, it, it, it wasn't even a name brand. It was just some weird name like the Frontier Lodge or something like that. And, uh, and literally, this is no, I'm not making this up, just, just, you know, life. But I woke up the next morning, and there was all kind of guys walking around in the parking lot with guns. But I, I quickly saw they were dressed as hunters. And I found out that I was staying really kind of where a bunch of hunters stayed to go shoot pheasants, I believe they said, and stuff. And, and uh, you know, so I felt pretty safe, even though they were, everybody was walking around with shotguns. But uh, I was also hearing weather reports that there was a blizzard, possibly, are going to be hitting Denver. Well, I'm from South Georgia, so I don't know anything about snow, much less a blizzard. And so I made a decision to leave anyway because we wanted to get, we, we could be there by lunch from where we were staying in Denver, and we wanted to get there and see her, her mom and dad. And so as soon as I crossed into Colorado, then we came into a full-fledged, no kidding, no joking blizzard. And, uh, and, and my family found themselves in a place that they did not want to be because I had placed them in that situation by my decision. Adam did the same thing to us. We're his kids. And he made a decision, and it placed all of us in a position and in a place that we didn't want to be, didn't ask to be, but he, he made the decision. And it, do you understand that? And it thrust all of mankind into that position. So in Adam, the Bible, New Testament says, all what? Die. But in Christ, everybody does what? Lives. So who really is a sinner by the New Testament? Are, are you a sinner because you sin? Or do you sin because you're a sinner? Did you hear me? I'm not trying to trick you or anything. But in other words, how many sins do you have to commit? I know I've asked you this before, but uh, some of you missed that Sunday. So how many sins do you have to commit to be a sinner? How many? Come on, you're, you're getting it. None. See, the first time I asked you that a year ago, whatever, you told me one. So you're learning, and we're all learning. Most of the answers, you know, when I go to a different church and I ask that, they'll say one. If you commit one sin, then you're a sinner. And I go, thanks for playing. You missed it. The Bible says none. You don't have to do any sin, and you're still a sinner. Why? Because Romans chapter 5, 19 says you were born a sinner. It says, for it's by one man's disobedience. Who was that one man? Adam. That's right. Many were done what? Made, born, created a sinner. So they didn't commit sin. They were born sinners, right? So also by one man's obedience, many will be made what? Who are those that will be made righteous? Will they be made righteous when they die and get to heaven? If it takes death to make you righteous, then we need to stop worshiping Jesus and start worshiping death because death is now our Savior. Because death is doing something that Jesus could not do. That's not true, is it? Who makes you righteous? Jesus. Who made you righteous? Jesus. Whose righteousness do you have? It's his righteousness. And you are the righteousness of God. How? In Christ. And when will you be made righteous? The moment you believe in Jesus. You are as righteous in that moment 
as you will ever be. You will not be more righteous when you get to heaven. Because if you're not already 100% righteous, you ain't going to heaven. God has very high standards. And those standards are gifted to you by his son, Jesus Christ. So you will not stand in heaven based on your righteousness because we have none. But it's all on his. God don't grade on the curve. 70 is not passing with God. It's 100. Perfection. But God is the God that makes the spirits of just men perfect. The Hebrew said God has perfected forever those who are in Christ Jesus. Said ain't nobody perfect. I told you this over and over. You better pray to God, you are, because that's the only people going to heaven is perfect people. Not perfect in their outward, not perfect in their behavior, not perfect in what they do, not perfect even in their soul, but perfect in their spirit. Perfected by God. Sanctified. That's why you call it a saint, because you are sanctified. What does that mean? Set apart. Holy. Special. Precious. Awesome. God's children. <laughs> Ain't this a depressing church to go to? I mean, I'm telling you. Bad news every Sunday, right? Oh. Romans 3.23 really defines what sin is in God's eyes. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's definition of sin is just falling short of what he had planned for you. God's got a glorious plan. And that's why Christ in you is the hope of that glory. The cross is a rescue mission. The cross is not some weird sacrifice of bloodletting. It's not God killing his son out of anger instead of killing you. Well, he's got to kill somebody. I mean, better he kills Jesus than me. No, no. Religion paints that that way. Religion tells you that God wasn't even looking at his son when he died. Religion says that God turned his back on Jesus and hid his face from him because they fill in the blank that they created and said God's too holy to even look at sin. And all of those things are lies. Could I ask you a question? When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, did they sin? <laughs> See, the uh, answer was in the question. <laughs> See, Jill's not here today to keep me straight, so that's why I'm acting up. When Adam and Eve disobeyed in the garden, did they sin? So God never came back then, right? So God never looked at them again, right? He never talked to them again. He never went back to the garden because, you know, he can't look at sin. And they were sinners, right? Because they sinned and they became sinners by sinning. And they were the only two people that could do that because the rest of us sins. We sin because we are sinners. They sinned and became sinners. Right? So God didn't come back in the garden then and talk to him anymore? And no, God still came, right? He came looking for him. Did he find them? They were hiding though, right? They said, don't worry about it, God. We got this. We'll take care of our own nakedness and our own sin problem. And they made fig leaves. That's about as smart as man is, is trying to deal with his sins. Temporary at best, 
Winds of adversity will blow it away and expose your sin again, right? Men like to make their own fig leaves. They like to create their own religion to take care of their own sin problem. But God still came. So don't ever believe the lie that God can't look at sin. God's not afraid of sin. God's not scared of anything. If God can't look at sin, he can't look at me or nobody in this room because we still sin. My identity is I'm not a sinner. And even though Grandpa says it in the old church that we're just all sinners saved by grace, no, you ain't. Once you're saved, you're a saint. And if you're not a saint, I always say this, stop reading the New Testament because the New Testament epistles of Paul, at least, are all written to the saints. So don't read somebody else's mail. The letter's not addressed to sinners. It says to the saints at Ephesus. To the saints at Thessalonica. To the saints at Corinth. So don't read it if you're not a saint. Because it's not addressed any longer to sinners. Because once you become a believer in Christ, your identity is now I'm a saint. I may not always behave like a saint or like the world says a saint should behave. I may not have a statue of me in front of a Catholic church, but I'm still a saint. I grew up in church hearing Christians talk one to another saying, I'm not trying to be a saint or anything. But, and then they would, and we know you're not trying. How about trying one time? How about try to be what you really are? Stop being a hypocrite because you're not a sinner. So stop acting like you're not what you are. You've been made righteous in the sight of God and start acting like you what you really are on the inside and that's a saint. Now why don't you talk to one and say, I'm a saint and so I'm going to act like one right now. Hallelujah. And then talk to them. <laughs> Amen, baby. Glory to God. <laughs> Help me preach. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3, 4, and 5. This is, I wanted to read the Message Bible. I think we even have that on the, on the here, don't we? Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Is that the translation I have? Uh, I, I think that's something different. I don't know. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3, 4, and 5. Uh, it says, so I greet you with great words. Grace and peace, Paul says. We know the meaning of those words because Jesus Christ, this is what it says, rescued us from this evil world. Uh, we're in by offering himself, we're in by offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. God's plan is that we all experience that rescue. That's what he says. And then he says in verse 5, glory to God forever, oh Yes. I read that yesterday, man, I love that. Uh, it says he rescued us. Um, he rescued us. Uh, what happened on the cross? He rescued us just like Moses rescued the children of Israel from Egypt. You understand that Moses was a type and a shadow of a deliverer, of a one who would set God's people free. I'm almost done. 
And so if you want to see what really happened at the cross, you kind of got a video of it in the Old Testament story of Moses, Pharaoh, the Hebrews, all of that. Uh, The children of Israel, like us, were born slaves, right? Paul said we were slaves to sin. We were born that way. So these Hebrews have been, as a people group, in bondage in Egypt as slaves for 400 years. Do you understand? So we're not making this stuff up. They were born slaves. And they have an evil ruler over them who is beating their backs, making their lives miserable, and forcing them to live as slaves. Am I right? So you see the picture of that? That's how it is with us. We're born slaves. The devil, Pharaoh, tormenting our lives, making it hard for us. And so God sends in Moses to the Hebrews. Now what sets him apart? He's a special man. Listen, because he's the only Hebrew man who is not owned by Pharaoh. So God, listen, so God wants to set Hebrews free. So God has to use a Hebrew man to set the Hebrews free. So this Hebrew is special, Moses, because he's not owned by Pharaoh. He's a free man. And so God sends him in, and the message that Moses has to Pharaoh is, let my people go. He says, I'm talking on behalf of my father. And he told me to tell you, Pharaoh, devil, (laughs) let God's people go that they can worship him. And he resists. He refuses. And so God did the same in shadow there, but he did the same in reality with his son. So here comes Jesus. All right, so man is in bondage to Satan. And so what God does is God chooses a special man. Like Moses was not owned by Pharaoh, so God could use this Hebrew to set the Hebrews free. So God sends his own son, who is not of Adam, for God is his father, and Mary is his mother. He's the God-man. He's not of Adam, so he is not a slave to sin, and he is not part of the slave race. But God has to have a man to set men free like he had to have a Hebrew to set the Hebrews free. So he chose a special man, Moses, to set the Hebrews free, and he chose a special man, Jesus, to set me and you free. So Jesus came in the form of a man, but he's a special man. He's not a slave man. Sin has no claim on him. (laughs) This man, Jesus, goes into our bondage, and he sets us free. He delivers us from being born slaves. And when he did what he did, being born a slave ended for those that would put their faith, confidence, and trust in him. What does it say that that God did with Pharaoh? Did God imprison him or anything? No. What God did is God drowned Pharaoh. He condemned him, and he drowned him 
and all of his horses and mighty army in the Red Sea. God used baptism water. How did God deal with that old life? And how did God stop that old life from trying to chase you down and to take you captive again and bring you back into that same old life? He drowned Pharaoh and his army with baptizing water. The Bible says that those children of Israel were all baptized unto Moses in the Red Sea. It literally says they were baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. I don't know if y'all getting all this video playing for you. They were baptized unto Moses and God destroyed that in your life. Stop believing the lie that you're that same person. You're not that same person. And you don't have to go back to that old life and keep doing that old stuff and be drugged back. But listen, because there's nothing to drag you back to Egypt again because it's been dealt with. So once they crossed over, once you put your faith in Christ, once you have baptized yourself, been baptized and identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, once you say, this is my dead day, this is not my birthday, this is the day that I'm done with the old me, there is a new creation, I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus, and you come out of those baptizing waters, you come up at a new creation, I'm not saying baptism water saved you, I'm saying that is the symbol, that is the, the portraying of what Christ did. When you get baptized, you stand in the place of death, you stand in the Red Sea, you stand in that place, you have to stop breathing and die. You hold your breath to be baptized. You're not breathing. If you don't breathe, you're dead. It's symbolic. You're you're, you're dead. You're not breathing. You're pushed into the grave. You're not breathing while you're there. Why? Because you're dead. But then you're brought up out and you take a new breath. You're now a new creation. You're in the presence of God. You're a child of God. You've been set free by God. You've been rescued by God. (laughs) Glory to God. Don't go back to drugs. Don't go back to sexual immorality. Don't go back to that old life because that's not who you are anymore. And don't blame it on the devil because he's been dealt with sin, that power, that entity. See, the church still thinks that sin is a verb. But sin, in the book of Romans, sin is mentioned more than any of the New Testament writings. And every time sin is mentioned except once, the word sin in the book of Romans is a noun. Remember nouns? Person, place, or thing. Sin is an entity. It is a thing. It is a power that takes you captive. Sin is more than an action that somebody does. If you don't believe it, check it out. And if the church would know that sin is not a verb but it's a noun, when when the first person ever used the word sin was God. And when Cain murdered Abel, God told him, sin lieth at the door. And God in the King James Version said, he desires to have you, that he may bring you into, you know. And so God personified sin as an entity, as a person. He personified it. Him who knew no sin became sin. No verbs there, all nouns. When John pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, that's a noun. The word sin there translated is noun. God said, That man you sing right there, he's not coming to stop people from badly behaving. God did, Jesus didn't take away everybody's bad behavior. Because if he did, he failed. So you can still behave bad, 
But what he did take away is that entity, that power of that thing called sin. All that Satan has left is his mouth. That's really all he's ever had once he was cast out of heaven. If he had torpedoes, missiles, swords, and spears, he would have used them on Adam. But he had none. When you get kicked out of office, you lose your power. If you were the sheriff and you get kicked out of being the sheriff, you can't still pull me over and give me a ticket. You may still have your little badge because it may have your name on it. But we know you're not the real sheriff now. So we don't have to mind you. You're just pretending to be the sheriff. But we know that you got kicked out of office. Man, if y'all get this. The devil got kicked out of heaven. Now some of you think he's just, you know, he's just like the Hulk in the spirit of something deal. It's ridiculous. God never made a devil. God didn't create Satan. <laughs> See how quiet they get on me? Man, this place gets quiet. I don't know if I scare them or it's revelation. Or... I'm sure you never heard that. Well, who made Satan? We did. Adam did, to be more specific. Y'all are terrifying me today. I want my mommy. <laughs> God made Lucifer, son of the morning. God created Lucifer, worship. God did create Satan. Who made Satan? Adam. Adam. What did, how did Adam make him Satan? Adam gave him his power. Adam gave him his authority. Because Satan has none on his own. And by the way, the only authority that Satan has today is what you give him. You give him none, he has none. He can't buffalo you. That's why nothing evil, wicked can touch you. He can't do it. If you knew this, you'd sleep better at night. So what he wanted was what Adam had. He wanted his authority and power. And so Adam believed the lies that he said, and he gave him his power and authority. And if you, and if you think I'm making this stuff up, you remember in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness when Jesus is here on earth, and remember Satan took, you know, and he went to the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil 40 days before that. Remember that? You know, that last temptation that said Satan took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world in a moment's time, right? Remember that? Saints that know I'm in the Bible, y'all just kind of grunt amen, and that way the people don't read it. They'll know that I'm not making this stuff up. This is what, this is what Satan said to Jesus in the New Testament. He said, now see all these kingdoms of this world and their authority, their glory, their splendor. He said, I can give them unto whomever I choose. He said, for this authority, exousia is the word he used, Greek word authority, was delivered to me. And I can give it to whoever I want to. When was that authority delivered? Did he order that from Amazon and UPS bring it? No, Adam gave his authority 
to Satan. And from that day forward till Jesus got here, he used that authority. That's why from Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament, you will never see any prophet, great or small, cast out no devils. Why? Because they wasn't any? No, they were there, but man had no authority over him. Why? Because he had given that authority to the devil. But when Jesus stood on the earth for the first time, they said, there's a new sheriff in town. For this man has authority over the demons. When he speaks, they listen. They recognize him. He don't even have to say, they cry out to him, Jesus, have you come to torment us before the time? And Jesus will say, be quiet, which is a nice Greek way of saying, shut up. And he says, I charge you to come out of them. And they came out. The baddest demon-possessed man on the planet, Legion, one, had, had uh, uh, thousands, over 12,000 demons in one man. Man, his house was full. Jesus said, what's your name? He said, Legion, for we are many. Jesus said, get out. All y'all. And all those demons departed from that demonized man, right? Y'all just let me know when I say Bible. And all them demons begged to go into a herd of hogs, right? Who did they ask could they get into the hogs? Jesus. So that's kind of like a prayer, isn't it? I mean, when you ask Jesus for something, wouldn't you classify it as a prayer? So the demons prayed to Jesus and said, Jesus, don't just cast us out into the abyss. Let us go into the swine, to the hogs. Jesus said, okay. If, if Jesus answered demons' prayers, how about yours? I'm not saying ask that you can get in a hog. And all the demons went into the hogs. But the hogs didn't like it. Even a hog got better sense than live with a demon. And all the hogs ran. Y'all just let me know if I'm saying Bible. All the hogs ran and went over the cliff and, and, and crashed down in the rocks in the sea. And so was created deviled ham. Oh, come on. Come on. <laughs> Some Christians are so holy they won't even eat devil's food cake and stuff like that. I know, you name it whatever you want to, but you know it's still devil's food cake when you put it in your mouth. Deviled ham. See, if you read the Bible like I do, you'd have a lot more fun. You'd read it more often. The devil has no authority over you. As a New Testament believer, he has no authority over you. Only if you give it to him. Satan said, all this authority had been given unto me. He was delivered to me. But Jesus was there to take back what the enemy was given wrongly by Adam. Adam put us in this position. And so what happened on the cross is that the Bible says God condemned sin, that entity, the noun, sin, on the cross. Romans 8 and 3, the uh, amplified version. This is what it says. This is the last part of it. It says, God condemned sin in the flesh. Now, I wanted to read the Amplified because it, it says it this way. God condemned sin in the flesh, subdued it, overcame it 
deprived it of its power over all who accept that sacrifice of Jesus. Man, that'll make you shout right there. That that's what God did. And it, it says God condemned sin in, in the flesh, the flesh of his own son. So not only did he condemn sin, but listen, he obliterated sin. He removed sin. He took it away. How away did he take it? Show me Pharaoh. I'm talking about the one that drowned in the Red Sea. Where is he at? He was taken away. He was no more. He never chased a Hebrew again. He lost his power. He lost his army. He was drowned in the Red Sea. If you ever wondered what God's talking about that happened on the cross, look at Moses, Pharaoh, all of that story. That's what happened to you. God took the power of sin, the entity, away. It can no longer have bondage in you unless you believe the lie of the enemy. How did he do it? He did it like I just quoted 2 Corinthians 5.21. Him who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteous of God in him. Now listen to this. Sin had no hold on Jesus. So, it, but on the cross, now listen, so sin has no, no authority, no, no hold on him, no charge against him. But this is how I see it. So sin had no hold on Jesus, but on the cross, Jesus took hold of sin. <laughs> Jesus grabbed that thing called sin. And he, it, he, that sin had no hold on him. So he took hold of it. And he took hold of sin and he held on tight while his father, working with him and in him, poured out his wrath on sin. Not on his son, but on sin. Jesus held on while the father, all of his wrath poured out on sin. Why do it that way, God? Why, why do it that way? Because God didn't have any other choice because he loved us. So it's like this. If, if God couldn't tackle sin without killing all of us because we were all sinners. So listen to me. If God dropped an atom bomb on sin, so to speak, before you understand, you, it had killed all of us. He could have got sin, but we'd have been destroyed in it too. So what God did is he took sin, the sin of the world, and he took it from all of us and he concentrated it in his son. So that would leave us safe. And then God poured out that atom bomb. Play on words if you want to revelate that. You know, they said the most powerful thing that man ever discovered was the splitting the atom. I don't think it's a play on words. And the most powerful thing that ever happened in this world is when the last Adam called Jesus. He's called the last Adam was split in two on the cross and released the greatest power that this world has ever known. They even call it B.C. and A.D. It changed time. Everything's different since the cross. The cross tells me two things about God. It tells me, first of all, that he loves us more than he loves his own life. That's a good daddy. 
That's why I love that Liam Neeson movie, Taken. You might like it, but hey. I love it because I know it's, you know, a little violent there. But when, when those bad guys take his daughter and drag her out from under that bed and take her captive, uh, it, it shows that this father here loves his daughter and nothing's going to stop him. I love it when he called, you know, on the phone. I don't know who you are. <laughs> if you return my daughter, I will not pursue you. I will not chase you. But if you don't, I will come for you. I will pursue you. I will find you. And when I do, I will kill you. That's the greatest part of any movie ever. I'm in the thing. Yes. You tell him, man. And then when he finds them, they all sat at the table. I told you I'd come for you. <laughs> see, when I watch that, I see, because the Bible isn't all that's not a Sunday thing for me. So when I'm sitting in the movie theater and I see that, I see how much God loves me. That Satan took me and drugged me captive. And God says, there's nothing that's going to stand between me and rescuing them. Amen. That's the way God is. So the first thing it tells me, God loves us more than his own life. Secondly, it tells me that if God is for me, then nothing can stand against us, not even our sin. So I'm ending with this statement. Listen, I've told you this three times already. The power of sin has been broken. You have been forgiven. Now, people out here riding up down the roads, and they're buying the world, and they've never been to a church, and they've never read a Bible, and never said a prayer, but they are still forgiven already by God. Are you saying that they are saved? I am not saying that they are saved because as many as believed in him, to them he gave the authority, the power to be sons of God. You still must believe. That's called putting your faith in him. They're not, they are forgiven and God's not mad. And all the bad things that are happening to you is not because God's punishing you. Sin has its own built-in bad things. Because sin's not from God. Every good thing comes from God. God didn't invent sin. God didn't create sin. So sin has its own bad byproducts, its own bad results. So when you make bad, sinful decisions, bad things are unleashed and happen to you, but it is not God the Father who is punishing you. If you place your hand on the eye of the stove that's red hot and you burn your hand, it's not because God desired you to burn your hand, but, but pain has built in things. One thing that pain is there is to tell you don't do that because if you don't remove your hand quickly, you could lose your whole hand. So God, by a gift, put pain sensors to let you know this is hurting your body. Remove it. So sin has this thing in it that hurts you and hurts others. And so if you, if you listen and look, you, you, you won't want to do it. But it's not God doing it to you. 
God's not mad with you. God's not trying. If you could pay for one of your sins, well, I guess I'm just paying for my sins. I guess I'm just reaping what I've sowed. If you sin, you, there's consequences. God's not doing it. You made the decision, you're paying the price. You robbed the bank, they're going to lock you up. God's not locking you up. God didn't fingerprint you. God's not going to sentence you. God's not doing it to you. Stop being mad at him. He's the only one that can rescue you. God didn't do it. You made a bad decision and you're paying the price of your consequences of your bad decision. Yeah, you do reap what you sow, but you're reaping what Jesus sowed. And Jesus sowed his life and you get to reap his life if you'll receive it by putting your faith in him. Just It's called being born again. It's called trusting in Jesus. So the cross, you got to understand, the cross made an end of your old self. The person you used to be died on that cross with Jesus. You're no longer a sinful son of Adam. One of them said it on the praise team this morning. I heard it. I had my head bowed, but I heard it. You're no longer a sinful son of Adam, but you're a righteous son of God. You're a righteous son of God. So reckon yourself as dead to sin and alive to God. Because when you were born sinners, you were dead to God and you was alive to everything sinful. But once you got born again, then now you're dead to sin and you're alive to God. You really are alive to God. And that's why when you live in a way that's contrary to who you really truly are, you don't feel good. It breaks your heart. Because deep, deep, deep down, you ever heard that? Deep down, you really want to do the right thing. And that's why you feel bad when you don't. Because that's the proof that that's really who you are on the inside. That's your proof that you really are a new creation. You're born again. So just yield to the Spirit of God that's within you. Yield to that instead of this world's beckoning, calling, and all that mess. Because, see, all that mess has been forgiven, but it keeps you far short of really the glorious life that God wants you to have. You, know, you fall short of that glory. And that's real the Bible definition of sin. Bible definition of sin. It's just falling short. And that's the only reason God don't ever want you to do it, because it just makes you fall short of the glory that he has intended for you. Amen? I wonder if anybody would, do you receive this word today? Would you give God praise for it because it's his word? Would you stand with me? Father, we praise you. Amen. I wish I could have a few of my elders, please, and elders and wives and ministry team just to come up in case someone wants prayer today. Say, it's 12.03. Brother Dale did so good today by getting us out right around 12 where we can get chicken. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I like to have fun. Praise you, Father. Boy, God's a good daddy. Brother Ken, man, if I knew God was this good when I was 20, I'd have been a happier feller a lot longer ago. I'm so glad that God has shown me the revelation of his gift of righteousness. That's what the Bible calls it. I'm so glad that he's finally made grace amazing for me. I used to sing amazing grace, but never were amazed by it. I always heard terms in the church I grew up in, like greasy grace and, you know, and there ain't no slide into heaven and all that stuff. And they had they gave me just enough understanding about grace that it would I was saved by grace through faith, but then I was kept by Dale through me being obedient. 
And the grace part was good, but Dale trying to live in a way that I thought would please God was horrible. And I always lived in fear that if the rapture happened, I'd be left. In fact, many sermons told me I would be left and I'd have to get my head chopped off is the only way I'd make it. All kind of uplifting stuff like that, I was told. I was told that if I failed to confess just one sin, I would miss heaven forever and go to hell forever. And that was so nerve-wracking for me. Because I had to admit that I wasn't a perfect guy in my behavior. I always thought people would cut me off on the interstate and I'd wave at them with one finger and talk about their mama. And then the rapture would happen and I'd just blow it off over that one jerk, you know. He would cause me to miss heaven. Until I really came to the revelation that John 3.16 and many other passages are true. That when Jesus gave me life, he defined what kind of life I'm giving you, Dale. Everlasting life. Eternal life. Not temporary life based on your obedience. But I'm giving you eternal life. And even though you were made a sheep, and he's our shepherd. But when sheep, there are, at times, they wander. They wander off. Sheep are not the smartest creatures. You know? You don't go to sheep shows where the sheep are jumping through hoops and standing on their back legs and, you know, doing all that weird stuff that all the other animals do because you can't train a sheep to do that. Sheep are pretty dumb. I is a sheep too. I'm glad I have a chief shepherd. But if I, listen, if a sheep wanders way off from the shepherd, do they turn into a goat? No. No matter how far they wander away. They're always a sheep. And the shepherd will leave the 99 safe. He'll go after that one. And when he finds them, he don't break their leg like the story you heard and people telling this crazy mess. If my child run off and kept leaving out of the yard when they're toddlers, I'm not going to find my child five blocks over and then break his leg so he'll stop wandering away. They lock you up for that in Georgia. Child abuse. So please stop accusing my father for being an abuser of children. The Bible says that when the good shepherd goes and finds a sheep, he'll keep looking until he finds it. And when he finds it, he don't even make it walk home. He throws it up on his own shoulders and he carries it all the way back to the fold. That's the heart of God. That's God's heart. That's what God feels about you. And you can't walk away from God far enough as a sheep that you turn into a goat. You never will. People always ask me ridiculous stuff, and I'm getting old enough now, I really kind of grow weary. What happened to the prodigal son if he died in the pig pen? I said, what did you just call him? Prodigal son? What was the second word you used? Son? Okay. You just answered your own question. Stop asking me. If he died in the pig pen... He would have died as a son. And all sons are sons. 
Now, it's daughters too. You understand no gender here. If you wander away from God and wander away from, wander from Papa's house, you're still a son. You're still a sheep. Some of you mamas and daddies in here need to remember that over some sons that wandered way off. And they had come back home. But they died as a son. They died as a sheep. I know away from Papa's house and away from enjoying all the comforts of home, but still a sheep nonetheless, loved by Father. Jesus said, I know those that are mine, and nobody can ever pluck them out of my hands. I'm glad today that I know that that ridiculous lie, I cannot lose my salvation. I can't lose what I didn't purchase. I can't lose what was gifted to me. My behavior didn't endow it to me, and my misbehavior will not take it from me. I have eternal security, and it don't make me want to sin like crazy. It makes me want to love like crazy to him, that won't, the one that would save me like that and that lo- would love me like that. In Christ, I love you guys with all my heart. I love to get to do this few minutes what I do every Sunday. I love to tell people the good news about Jesus. And hopefully that the goodness of God that you hear would cause you to repent, which means change your mind about him. Don't believe the lies religion told you about him. He's a good God. I'm going to spend every day I have. I sat in the house this past week doing a little thing, helping my son and all a little bit on the side there. I was in this lady's home talking to her. It came up and it just came about that she knew I was a preacher. She said, so if you're a preacher, then everything is confidential, right? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, I have AIDS. And I'm dying. She said, for 20 years, I've kept this a secret from this little town. And I've never been able to tell anybody. And she said, I was laying in bed before you knocked on my door, praying about my life and that God would help me. I was able to do some things that would bless her financially even and help her financially. I don't mean giving her money. I mean the services I was able to tell her about and do. Increased her monies. She was getting so sick she couldn't continue to work. And she said the people had been so afraid, you know, that the few people that even close to her she had told that she had AIDS, they were scared to even get within five, ten yards of her. And when she was talking to me, I felt the Spirit of the Lord come on me real strong. Every, what I mean by that is as far as for Dale, for me, I felt all my, I felt those Holy Ghost chill bumps, you know. I felt God's presence. And I just put my arms around her. And I hugged her. And I, and I told her how much God loves her. She told me she's going to come here one Sunday. She could even be here today. I probably should have thought of that before I told the story. But um, you wouldn't know she wasn't knowing. But I felt God's presence, and I thought that when I left that house. I said, man, that's kind of so unusual to me, so weird almost like. But yet it was God's love, and, and she, she knew God had, 
answered her prayer, she said. She said, I was just praying. And she said, I asked God that if he would just, if I could just have $800 a month instead of the $600 i am getting, that it would, I, I, could, I could make it. The things I was able to tell her about and help her with, she's now going to have $900 a month <laughs> in her income. And I said, not only did God answer your prayer, but he gave you 100 extra. That sounds just like my papa. And she said, I'm so thankful that you came. And she just cried. I just held her. And I had the feeling it was the first time anybody really hugged her in a long time. She didn't have any family. She lived alone. She's not married. That's why Jesus would, the lepers were so freaked out that he touched them. So freaked out. There's a lot of people in this world need to know that God loves them. And me and you have the privilege to tell them about this God who reconciled their sin to himself. And then he made us ministers of that reconciliation, right? And that God said, it's just like me beseeching them through you. And this is what he said in 2 Corinthians 5, last verse. He said, you're my ambassadors now. And you're to tell them that I've reconciled their sin and I'm not mad. And this is what he said. Tell them this. God's reconciled your sin to himself. So now you be reconciled to him. Be reconciled to God. How do they get reconciled to God? Confess? No. Believe in just believe in how good that what he's done. He's completed it all. And when they believe that, the books are said reconciled. You know what you are now? You're in harmony with God. You have in your account, spiritually, the same thing that heaven, the bank says you have. And what does heaven say you have in your account? You're righteous. You're holy. You're redeemed. You're saved. You're secure. You're a son of God. So make your books line up with what the bank says you have. Be reconciled to God. Reckon yourself as dead to sin. Reckon yourself as dead to sin. Reckon your books that I'm alive to God. That's not my old life. I'm not that person no more. No. I'm a new creation. And if you've wandered far away, hey, you're still a sheep, man. It's better back at Papa's house. Get out of the pig pen. God didn't put you there. You made decisions. Get out of that. You eat better at Papa's house. You sleep better at night at Papa's house. Come on back, man. We love you. Your brothers and sisters, we miss you, man. Come on back to church. Come on back to the kingdom. If you don't like this church, there's, there's other good ones in this county. They ain't as good as this one, but they're close. <laughs> you know, I'm teasing. Don't send me no emails. You know, I feel like if I was in the spirit, you won't understand this. I'm, but I have that feeling. <laughs> I feel like if I just kind of lifted my hands, I would hit the wind chimes of heaven. Stay close. Heaven's kissing earth. His presence is so real. He's calling sons and daughters home. He's just loving on you. Father, Holy Spirit, move on your people. Move over Facebook. Move over those that hear the word of the Lord. Bless them.
convince them of their righteousness in you. Those that don't know you in the world, let them hear the call to come home. We pray for our families, our sons and daughters and brothers and sisters, moms and dads who are not born again. We pray that the blindness on their mind would go. For Satan has blinded their minds, they can't believe, Paul said. But we pray that that blindness will go and that their hearts would be open and you would use whomever that is nearest to them to bring that revelation and that light to that place that is so dark. We pray for them now. We come in agreement with your sacrifice for them. For you're not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance, to righteousness. And I pray that today in Jesus' mighty name. If you're here today and you want prayer, I'm going to dismiss the congregation. We love you guys here at Grace Point. Please come back. If you're a first-time guest, please come up. I'd love to shake your hand, see you, meet you, know who you name, who you are. But these guys are standing here. It's our honor to pray for you. We're not going to tell 14 car wreck stories and try to scare you. We're here to pray with you if you want prayer for any reason, okay? God bless you. Go enjoy this day. Amen. Hug somebody's neck on your way out. Shake their hand. Introduce yourself to them. If you want prayer, we're waiting on you up front. Just come up here and we'll be glad and honored to pray with you.